This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. A political activist, Nazar Banat, was beaten to death by Palestinian security forces last Thursday. And for the last week, there have been intense protests and confrontations with Palestinian security forces in Palestinian cities in the West Bank. And these events have been almost completely invisible to not only the outside world, but even Israeli society right here. And in order to cut through that media blackout, I've asked a friend living in Ramallah, Brian Williams, to come on the program and to share his perception of what's been going on in Palestinian society for the last few days. Listeners should recognize and appreciate that Brian is taking a relatively significant risk by coming on the show and sharing what's been going on. So I really want to urge listeners uh, to take seriously what you're about to hear. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Yehuda. Wish I could say I'm happy to be here to discuss this topic, but obviously it's... Um... Right. Well, first of all, can you give our listeners a little bit of background? Who was Banat? Why was he important? Sure. So Nazar Banat is the leader of one of the, let's say, minority fringe parties here in the West Bank. And he was actually running in the elections that were canceled. And he's a longstanding critic of Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority in general. I would say his two main claim to fames are that he is a vocal critic of the security coordination between the Palestinian Authority and Israel. And he's also a very strong critic of the European Union and Western countries funding the Palestinian Authority and specifically the Palestinian security forces. Um, and so he has been extremely vocal uh, for maybe 15 years at this point, um, but especially the past maybe five years, he's been a fierce critic. This is not his first run in with the, with the security forces or with Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, he's been arrested before. Um, on similar charges. What were the charges? Over the, over the years, uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority have enacted very draconian laws about freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And they've expanded the definitions of things like slander, specifically vis-a-vis -vis the, the PA um, or Mahmoud Abbas. So they had them for charges of um, disturbing the peace or um, provocation or insulting the leader um, these kind of draconian, large-scale you know, terms that really mean nothing, but are used to be able to imprison people uh, or at least detain them for periods of time. Mm -hmm. If I understand correctly, the, the law like wagging your tongue against the king was a Jordanian law that Correct. was grandfathered into the Palestinian Authority. Um, yes, in theory, it was grandfathered in, but it was like, you know, blue laws in the U.S., I guess would be an example. But at the same time, it wasn't just a blue law that Mahmoud Abbas has pulled one day and said, go arrest him. Um, I mean, he, he has done executive orders for years now to have these kind of laws in. So, it's, it, you know, it's just he beefed them up and he made them um, enforce and expanded them. It wasn't just like, oh, hey, you know, Mr. Abbas, we found a way to arrest him now. Look at this. It's more like they were proactive with it. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't passive. It was very proactive restrictions on freedom of expression and freedom of speech here. Right, and it certainly wasn't like, this guy's insulting me. I, I'd like to ignore it, but what can I do? There's a law. I have to enforce the law. <laughs> right, exactly. No, I mean, this is, 
this is clearly there's some personal to it, um, you know, in the sense that Mahmoud Abbas does take uh, criticism of the regime from uh, internal activists very personally. Um, and he does his best to keep them to a minimum, considering the exposure that Palestinians have to um, the West in general, and let's say a, a worldwide audience, uh, Mahmoud Abbas wants to do his best to make sure that the, the Palestinian story, the Palestinian narrative, the Palestinian um, reaction to things is clear, coherent, and approved by him. So when you have these dissidents, um, it makes him look stupid. Like this is his perspective, um, where you know this is really a very strong identity in uh, in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem in general. This idea of like you know a coherent you know, linear um, narrative and story for anything that comes up. And that, that story and that narrative must be determined by Fatah, must be determined by the Palestinian Authority and Mahmoud Abbas. So was there anything about Banat that we could say made him some kind of security threat? I mean, I understand the, the arrest, you know, he was a political threat, um, but what, what's the reason for the beating other than punishment? Was it just punitive or could he have been, you know, resisting? Is there any chance he was fighting back against security forces? Was this like a tough guy received as a threat? No. Yeah, they just beat him as a less as, a, you know, basically to teach him a lesson, quote unquote. And I mean, the assumption is, is that the general assumption among people here um, is that it was they didn't go there to kill him, mm-hmm. um, but they beat him so badly that they ended up killing him. I mean, this is very, this happens all over the world where security forces basically, you know, treat every single person like a security threat. And this is what they're trained to do. So when they're in that situation, when they're in that moment, you know, that's what they employ. You know, I'm sure what they're going to do is I'm sure that they're going to say, oh, you know, a few bad apples. <laughs> oh, they went too far. I mean, this is if the Palestinian Authority even admits it, um, which they still have not. They have not admitted it. They've admitted that this guy is dead but they've admitted almost nothing else. Just so listeners know, this episode is being released on Thursday, but we're recording it on Monday. So a lot could be changing between now and when this actually is released. Yep, possible. So, okay, so this guy was basically um, arrested for being a political threat and a vocal critic against the regime, and he was beaten to death. And, and you assume that was by accident. You, you don't assume anybody went to assassinate him. Yeah, I don't, I don't assume that you're, I don't, I don't assume there was some order from a bus or even anybody high ranking, like go kill this guy. You know, I'm sure they said something, you know, in innuendo, go take care of him, shut him up, make him quiet. And people interpret orders in the way they interpret orders. And I'm sure that, you know, there's layers to this. Uh, but I don't think they went there saying, you know, our mission today is to kill Nazar Banat. Like, no, I, I don't think so, no. You think it was just an overeager policeman who hit him too hard too many times? Uh, not just, you know, one policeman. There are many there. But I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it's they went there and th- what they're trained to do is they're trained to they're not trained to do simple arrests. They're trained to torture and interrogate dissidents. This is what they've done for 25 years. So, you know, not all not all people are created equally. We're talking about a man in his 50s. You know, he's a a bigger size guy. I mean, maybe he had health issues. It's not 22 in perfect shape. So, I mean, they, but they treat them all like that. Um, and the autopsy uh, basically said that he died from blunt force trauma. So that makes sense. To the head. Okay. Now, since then, what is the, what have you been seeing? You live in Ramallah. 
what is the reaction of Palestinian society to this? Um, I would say that more than any other individual, um, at least to the best of my knowledge, in quite a long time, the death of one individual being so mobilizing um, and impacting such a wide swath of Palestinian society. Um, Nazar Banat is like, he's not, a, he's not a, you know, a super, super, super famous activist here. I mean, people know him, but he's not super famous, especially not internationally. All of his advocacy was in, was in Arabic. He, I don't think he even spoke English. Mm -hmm. um, Would it be fair to say that most people are reacting not to the who, but to the what and the how? Yes, because I think people, for the most part, either pretend actively or subconsciously that this doesn't exist. Although everybody knows it exists, I think a lot of people have convinced themselves that it doesn't exist. And also, too, I think with Bennett, I think what's important, to, and why I stress this, he's not a super famous activist, is that I think for many people, they're like, well, if they're willing to do this to him, um, you know, he's so typical, that could be me. Like, all it would take would be a few YouTube videos and some 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 protests and that could be me and so i think a lot of palestinians are having like a this could be me moment um and they're reacting um in that way and so what you've seen is and i think this is compounded with the fact that the family is refusing to back down the family of nazar Bennett. um the family from his father to his children have been extremely vocal his wife especially in talking to the media in exposing the coercion that's happening, the extortion that's happening, the blackmailing that's happening against them, um, and refusing to accept the fake condolences that are being put their way. And so um, I think that's really put a lot of flames to it. Like she, they're not afraid. And I think that uh, most Palestinians look at that extremely favorably because they know how hard that is to withstand societal pressure and governmental pressure to, to shut up. Mm -hmm. And they're not shutting up, uh, up to and including today on Monday. So Banat was killed by the security forces on Thursday in Hebron, in H2, correct? Meaning in the Israeli-controlled Israeli 20% of Hebron. Correct. So, which means that the Palestinian security forces had to get Israeli permission to actually arrest him. He mm -hmm. was not at his house. He was at his cousin's house. Mm -hmm. Um and this happened at 3.30 in the morning, and video has been released of it uh, yesterday, I believe, where you can see them, the security forces, uh, carrying his limp body and throwing him into a car uh, and then driving away. So this happened at 3.30 in the morning. The family um, became very vocal in speaking to media that morning. And so what happened was um, they called for, um, they didn't call for protest, but activists called for protest that afternoon uh, around one o'clock. So they gathered in Ramallah uh, in downtown in Manada, the main square. Um, and, you know, it was pretty standard, you know, they were, they were che you know, not cheering, but they, like, they were, you know, chanting and doing slogans of, um, you know, that they will avenge him, that, you know, they will make sure that his, uh, his killers are brought to justice um, and all this stuff. And then it was called for Thursday night um, to have a protest at night because the people were, they felt that it was not enough. So they wanted to do another one at night. Mm -hmm. And so on Thursday night, they organized a protest to march from Manara to the Mukata, which is the presidential square. 
which is about the distance of maybe a kilometer, maybe at most, um, on a street called Irsal. And so they called this protest and they started, it was about maybe at this time, maybe about 600 people, 700 people, um, which in Ramallah is pretty decent. And they marched towards uh, the Mukata and about maybe 300 meters beforehand, they were confronted by Palestinian security forces who once the protesters reached the security forces, the security forces had batons and they struck and they shot tear gas, they shot stun bombs and dispersed the crowd. And what basically happened was, and what normally happens at protests when this, hap when this goes on is that people basically run away. Um, they didn't run away. The Palestinians that were at this protest fought back. Mm -hmm. First, they, you, like, they rushed the Palestinian security forces, but because of tear gas and stun grenades, they got caught, pushed back. They acted as if the security forces, the Palestinian security forces, were Israeli soldiers. They flipped dumpsters. They had tires they lit on fire. They lit the trash on fire. They put rocks in the street to block jeeps or to block things like that. They treated it. I mean, there was, it was the first hit from a baton. Somebody had grabbed a rock and thrown it at them. And this, I really, I cannot stress this enough. This is a huge mental hurdle for Palestinians when confronting the Palestinian Authority is that they usually will take the violence, but they will not give it back in any form, any form. And this was like, it's, it's as if like, you know, it was their gut reaction. They smelled tear gas. They were being hit by batons. It's like they associated it with Israel. They associated it with the army. So that their immediate gut reaction was to fight back. Um, and so they basically had these skirmishes, these stone throwing, uh, tear gas, stun grenades through downtown Ramallah. And the kids that were there, a lot of them were kids from the camps. There are two refugee camps in Ramallah, uh, Kadora and Amri. And a lot of these, I, I didn't see anybody that was in the front lines over 25. That's why I'm calling them kids. Um, you know, they're under 25. And it's like they were letting out their frustration that of how tough it is in Ramallah. Like I recognize a lot of these kids from, you know, they're the kids who walk around Ramallah, you know, smoking at night. No, they can't afford to go anywhere because they're poor. They don't have jobs. They're not able to get jobs because unemployment is so high. And they were fighting back. And this was incredible to see. You know, this wasn't just a, you know, uh, usually in Ramallah, protests are very like bougie. They're very... Bland. It's like, you know, you have a bunch of white liberal grandmas protesting in America. It's kind of like that, but here. Um, but these kids, I mean, they were really, it's like the light turned on and it's like, no, this is our time. This is our moment. And they fought back. Um, and it was incredible. It, honestly, it was incredibly inspirational to see this because they were, they were taking the streets back. They were trying to, and they're trying to resist what they saw as stopping them from having you know, their place in their city and allow themselves to vent their frustration at what was going on. And during this, like all protests that happened in Ramallah, the Palestinian Authority cut the internet. What they do is they basically, we only have 3G here. They cut this to less than 2G. So um, it's their way to control information sharing. And also too, like one of the things, that, again, that, that I really loved about this first demonstration on Thursday, uh, Thursday night, was at some point, Nobody expected this to happen. So all the, it was around eight o'clock. Um, so all the shops were open. They started closing up when, you know, things started happening. And some of the shopkeepers were yelling at the, at the kids that were protesting and saying, 
guys, don't throw stones. You know, these are people's cars here. Let them get out of the way. And they basically said, F your cars, F your debt. We're not, we don't care. And like, that was awesome to hear. Like they were chanting this back at storekeepers. Like they were not allowing the society to control their expression, to control their rage. Um, and I think, again, this is, it's incredibly inspiring to see that because it's so uncommon here in Ramallah specifically. Um, and so kind of moving forward on Friday, there was kind of a, um, the people who were organizing the protest decided to not have one. There was still a small one that happened, but it was nothing, you know, nothing strong. It was very, and I think this was very smart on their part to not have a second one so close and to actually skip a day um, because it's hard to organize people on Fridays. And so they called for another one on Saturday at uh, five o'clock. And this was supposed to be a similar march from Manada to the uh, Mukata, the presidential headquarters. And this went very differently. Um, this is where people are maybe seeing photos from specifically. Um, so what happened was that a similar protest, they marched from Manada and they were about to confront the Palestinian security forces about 300 meters or so beforehand. And what ended up happening was um, a group of, for lack of a better term, let's call them thugs, although I think this is still too nice. Group of thugs, probably about 50, 75, maybe 100, I would say, confronted the protesters and they started chanting pro-Abbas, pro-Fatah, pro-Palestinian Authority slogans. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, there were 100 chanting against you know, upwards of seven, 800 people. So they got drowned out. And so what they started to do was they started to throw stones. They started to beat up. They started to club the protesters, these thugs. Um, these thugs were henchmen that were clearly brought in by, and they were in civilian clothes. And they were attacking protesters. And as this was happening, what, what happened at first was the protesters, again, were able to overcome them, despite you know, the fact that they were using weapons. The uh, protesters were able to overcome them. But once they did, then the security forces got in and started shooting at the protesters. Um, they were shooting tear gas, stun grenades, and I saw one injury by rubber bullet, although I don't know of any other cases of this. But once the security forces got in, then hundreds of these, these thugs started to roam the streets of Ramallah in civilian clothes, um, and they were carrying rocks, clubs, pepper spray, and other items, and they were attacking anybody who looked like a protester. Um, they specifically targeted women. They specifically targeted elderly because most of these thugs were 25 to 40. They look like they go to the gym. Um, they have short hair. Um, they kind of all look alike and they were all wearing the same uh, Corona masks, like the black masks. They all had them on under their chin or on their arm, whatever else, like as a signifier. The assumption is they're police, they're security forces. No they, no, they were not. They're actually, they mostly, so I, thankfully, a lot of these people have been getting doxxed. So for those people who don't know what doxing is, doxing is when you release public information on people, usually the ones that are involved in crime or um, things like this. Um, this. It's commonly used in the U.S. against uh, right-wing nationalists. It started, I think it started in Charlottesville, actually. People started doxing people. So people started to dox uh, these people here overwhelmingly they are involved in, not in the police, they're involved in military intelligence, different oh. branches of military intelligence. Oh. Um, some of them are grunts, some of them are mid-ranking officials and people have been getting doxxed. Uh, this has been 
honestly pretty awesome to see this happening. And the denials, the resignations, and things like that have been, have been interesting. But anyway, so these gangs roamed the streets. And what also what they were doing, and they're still doing it to this day, is they are confiscating cell phones and breaking cameras. Um, so this is why you're not seeing much footage um, of them. They're stealing the cameras. Wow. Anybody who has a camera out, they're told not to have their cameras out. So that if anybody has a camera, they're the enemy. If anybody has a cell phone out, they're the enemy. So they steal your cell phone. If, if you refuse to give it to them, they, will, they beat you then and there. I personally witnessed numerous people who refuse to give their cell phones. So they beat the crap out of them. And then as they're laying there on the ground, they took the phone out of, the, they took the phone out of their pockets. Wow. This happened. They went into stores after people who were injured to arrest them. They, then they would take their cell phones also. And so these gangs went through the streets of Ramallah for hours, ultimately about seven hours. And anybody who looked not like them, they beat them up in the streets. And then they even went to the hospitals. They, first of all, they obstructed ambulances getting people, again, personally witnessed. And then people who were at the hospital, they would, they would go to the hospitals, invade them and arrest people who looked like protesters, looked like they were injured from the protest. Um, Palestinian medical staff have, again, given testimonies about this fact, and there are videos of them invading the hospitals and arresting these people and taking their cell phones. So there are, at this point, thousands of cell phones that have been confiscated by these thugs in uh, different ways. This is Saturday. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and this is why you're not seeing much, much media about it. Um, and those people who have been sharing media, um, you know, we'll get to that, I guess. Um, so then Sunday, yesterday, there was a similar demonstration at six o'clock, um, and it was at the other main square of Ramallah called Clock Square. Mm-hmm. So this was a protest. So this, you know, after the day after, a bunch of people got beat up, got sent to the hospital, had their cell phones and whatever taken. Still, a few hundred people showed up Sunday at Clock Square, and you know, again, normal protests. They were chanting against. Abbas, they're chanting against uh, the regime. They're chanting, you know, to commemorate Nazar. They were asking for a true investigation. They wanted justice, all these things. And what happened was these same Fatah thugs showed up to the square and just beat the crap out of them right then and there. Um, Anybody who did not look like them, they beat them up. Um, they, They broke the camera of the field worker for CNN. They stole hundreds of cell phones. They sexually molested and assaulted women in the street. Wow. Anybody whose hair was longer than an inch or two, they beat the crap out of them. Then Clock Square has many restaurants and offices that overlook it. These thugs went from building to building and confiscated all the phones from people who were at the restaurants, who were at the cafes, who were at the the offices. Anybody that they thought was filming it, they stole their camera or their, their cell phone. If they refused to give them up, they beat them up then and there. Um, and so hundreds upon hundreds of cell phones. Um, I mean, I personally got punched in the face. Try, somebody was trying to get my cell phone. I was very fortunate. I was able to switch hands and all the scuffle and put it in my pocket. And I just said, I don't have a cell phone. That was, you know, that was after getting punched a few times. Wow. But whatever. I got to keep my cell phone. Good. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is, um, this is their tactic. I mean, what the Palestinian Authority did, I mean, I know, 
this is one of the hard things to explain is that people have the assumption of a free and open media. There's no free and open media here. And what the Palestinian Authority, the narrative that they've been perpetuating all day Saturday, all day Sunday, they control the radio, they control the television, and they basically just put forward this narrative that these protesters are from Hamas or they're being paid by um, uh, Dahlan, Mohammed Dahlan, who is a strongman, secular nationalist who's funded by the Emirates and other Gulf countries. To be perfectly honest, Dahlan and Abbas don't have different politics. Right. Um, they're just different personalities of the same politics. When uh, former U.S. President George W. Bush forced Ariel Sharon to relinquish the Gaza region, uh, the American plan was for Dahlan to rule Gaza. Yeah, I mean, and does he have support here? Uh, yeah, low single figures. Um, but this, like every high-ranking Fatah official was on media all day Saturday, all day Sunday, perpetuating this narrative that this is an attempted coup. These protesters, they're lying to you. They're really paid by Dahlan and by Hamas to stage a coup against Mahmoud Abbas. So we're calling on you, loyal Fatah supporters, to stand up in the street and make sure that you know, these you know, Islamic strongmen secularists. Uh, like, like we're calling on you to steal their phones and beat them. Yeah, but, I mean, basically, like, no, no, they, they weren't being, they wouldn't say it like that. They would say to stop the insurrection and to stop the coup and to stop the destabilization of the West Bank. And they said, we don't want Gaza here. Like that was like one of the slogans that they all said. And they, all these ministers went on television and went on radio and said, I've seen evidence that these protesters are paid by Hamas. They're paid by Dahlan. And I've seen proof and evidence, but I can't show you because it's confidential. It's like, it's, it's insane. I mean, I, I mean, just a simple, a simple way to do this. If you ask any person, any person in the world, to give you a description about what somebody from Hamas looks like. They'll tell you that they have, you know, beards, that the women are wearing niqab or, you know, very uh, conservative traditional wear. Almost all the women that are at these protests are not wearing hijab. They are, you know, wearing, let's say like Western, quote unquote, Western style clothes. They would perfectly fit in, in anywhere in the West in their look. These people are paid by Hamas to stage an insurrection. I mean, the chance that these people are saying they're demanding, they're demanding justice. They're calling for Abbas to step down. They're, you know, they're calling for accountability. These people are the ones that are like this great insurrection, but these, but the Fatah people, you know, were convinced of this. I mean, absolutely convinced. They thought that they were the vanguard against an attempted coup. And like, yeah, so they were, you know, in their mind, they were incredibly justified and, um, you know, they were stopping the insurrection. But in reality, they were just manipulated, absolutely just manipulated. And I mean, some of them are some of them are paid to do this. Like this is their job, their military intelligence. Some right. work for police, but they're all in civilian clothes. Everybody who was at, who was from Fatah, who was as at the um, yeah, the protest yesterday, was in civilian clothes. There were no security forces, no people in security forces clothing. Um, and so they beat the crap out of scores of people. Again, they sexually assaulted women. They beat up elderly people. I mean, this is what they did. And they stole the phones of hundreds of people to make sure the message doesn't get out, that the story doesn't get out. 
And I mean, to be fair, this again, going back to what was said earlier, these, this is what they're trained to do. And they've been trained to do this for the better part of 16 years. Trained specifically by Keith Dayton, correct? Correct, yeah. Right. Um, Keith Dayton and then subsequently, you know, EU personnel and specialists and things like that, but also the Americans. Right. I mean, it's, it's under the table now. Right. Keith Dayton was an American general. Correct. And I know that many Palestinian activists used to refer to the PA as like Dayton's Republic. They still do. Yeah. <laughs> That's, although, and it's much more common again. <laughs> uh, although he, he hasn't been here for years. No, 11 years. He left in 2010. Mm-hmm. Right. But the tactics remain. I mean, he was incredibly influential to the shaping and the structuring of the security forces here um, in their way to, you know, to quote unquote, keep the peace. And these strong arm tactics have, you know, uh, so not, Ramallah was not the only place that had this situation yesterday. The same thing happened in, uh, in Bethlehem and Hebron in Dehesha refugee camp outside of Bethlehem. Wow. Um, the same situation. And I mean, Fatah even had, they had, they created their own protest in a village north of uh, Hebron called Halhul, where they had armed militants marching the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, chanting for Abbas. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is what, if you look at Palestinian media, this is all that's being shown. Mm-hmm. Oh, Palestinians are out showing their support for Mahmoud Abbas, stopping an insurrection and stopping a coup by Dahlan and Hamas. And I mean, it's a manipulation. It's just, it's stunning. It's- so that's the story in Palestinian society. The official story is that this is an attempted coup by Dahlan yes. and Hamas. Yes. And we're not seeing much of this in the mainstream press, in the, in the, no. in the Israeli press. Like, we're not really seeing any of this. So wh- why don't you think we're seeing anything? I mean, the simple answer is, and I, I think it's a very cop-out answer. The simple answer is, well, people aren't documenting because it's harder to document. But at the end of the day, there's plenty of documentation. There's a lot less than there should be, but there's still plenty. I think that what's, what you see happening is that you these countries that fund the Palestinian Authority are so invested in the, you know, the stability of the Palestinian Authority that they don't want to cause, they don't want to make them look bad. They don't want to call them out for what's going on. They don't want to criticize what it is they've created because this is their creation. The Palestinian security forces are their creation. It's their money. It's their funding. I mean, the United States and the EU have spent Billions, with a B, billions of dollars on training, on arms, on recruitment, on everything to make the security forces what they are today. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to go and criticize that. Um, and I think it took over 24 hours, I believe, before the first real story came out about it. And it was... About Banat or about the protest? No. No, but not came out relatively quickly, but about the protests, that took a long time. Um, and still to this day, I mean, still on Monday, um, the articles basically are a paragraph long. Um, it says, you know, protesters and um, protesters and security forces uh, clash in Ramallah. Mm-hmm. That's it. Right. <laughs> I mean, uh, protesters protesting for justice for Nizar Banat clash with Palestinian security forces today in Ramallah. Like, mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, is it like one of the things that for people who don't understand from a Palestinian perspective, they really hate what's called the parody argument, where the news presents groups like Hamas and Israel to be 
equal foes in a battle and whoever wins, we don't know. When in reality, of course, we're talking about a modern mechanized army versus, you know, a, a bunch of guys with tin rockets. Um, there's no parity there. And so to use a parity argument for protesters versus an 85,000 strong security force, I mean, like, that's crazy. I mean, absolutely crazy. You have people that are chanting slogans and holding signs versus people that have AK-47s, um, military Jeep and personnel, and training on how to torture and kill. I mean, there's no parity here, but that's the way that the media is presenting it, if they even present it. And, and from your perspective, this is actually an uprising. This is a Palestinian uprising against Fatah. Um, I mean, I think it's a Palestinian uprising against Abbas. I, I, it's turning into an uprising against Fatah um, because of these henchmen and these thugs that are walking around, you know, singing Fatah songs um, and all that. Um, but it started, it started with Abbas. It started about, you know, calling on him to step down, calling on him to have an independent investigation. I mean, calling on for elections. <laughs> what right. are those? Um, so, I mean, it's, it turned from Abbas to Fatah, but there's still like, that's a hard, and I think Abbas very intentionally did this because it's very hard to confront Fatah because it's not a monolith movement and it has a, a great diversity of different wings and departments and ministries and philosophies. Um, even if, you know, at the end of the day, it's run by Abbas, um, you know, everybody knows, everybody knows somebody or has family that's been involved in one way or another in Fatah. So people, this is a real, some of you just do not confront in Palestinian society, but it's turning that way because Fatah has been demonizing and um, just making up stories and just evading accountability for so much and for so long that people are turning against Fatah slowly. Right, so I have two very important questions for you. Number one, you know, I might have this fantasy in my head of West Bank Israeli Jews coming into Ramallah and actually siding with the protesters, standing shoulder to shoulder and taking down the Palestinian Authority, taking down Mahmoud Abbas and somehow allowing that to become the beginning of some new reality in this country where we're able to kind of trust each other and move forward together without the existence of the Palestinian Authority here in a kind of equal one state paradigm. Now, I know that Israeli society is not there yet. I know that the Jews living in the West Bank are not there yet. I lament the fact that on our side, we are not politically advanced um, to even think in those terms. And for the most part, we're living in our own world as the Palestinians are, meaning that it's hard for us even to understand. And one of the reasons I, I think it's so valuable to have you on the show is because I don't even think most Israelis understand uh, Palestinian politics or Palestinian society or what this means, what this could mean, you know, what, what people mean when they chant X or what people mean when they say Y. Uh, so I think it's important for us to make ourselves aware, you know, of what's happening yeah. on the other side. Uh, but being that Israeli society is where we're at right now and Jews living in the West Bank are where we're at right now, uh, and we're not ready to just come into Ramallah and fight the regime with the protesters, what do you think we can do to be in solidarity with the protesters? 
follow Palestinian activists, um, follow pages that are sharing these stories. They're not hard to find. I mean, listen, the one outlet that the Palestinian Authority has the most trouble containing is social media, um, whether that be Twitter or whether that be um, Facebook. Um, these are the two main ones. Usually information is more shared on Twitter. Documentation videos and pictures are more on Facebook. Right. Um, one of the complications for us is going to be that often the very same activists, and this is part of, you know, this is part of us not understanding what's going on on the other side, uh, but a lot of the vocal activists who will be sharing information about these protests, a lot of them are in most cases also vehemently critical of Israel, of Israeli policies in the West Bank, um, in many cases of Israel's existence. And so that creates a psychological barrier for a lot of people on our side. No, I get that. And I think that maybe, and I know that that'll be tough for people um, because Palestinian discourse is Palestinian discourse, just right. like Israeli discourse is Israeli discourse. Meaning I, that when we hear, you know, I understand that when Palestinians challenge the right of the state of Israel to exist, uh, they're relating to the state of Israel as a settler colony that was built on top of them. I get that. Yes, um, yeah, sure. But when we, who don't understand that discourse, most Israelis do not understand the discourse, and when Israeli society hears a Palestinian challenging Israel's right to exist, what most Israelis hear is kill the Jews, right? Yeah, sure. It's referred to as genocidal, and I don't think that's just propaganda. I think that's how a lot of Israelis, a lot of diaspora Jews as well, hear it. So I think there are a lot of slogans probably on both sides that are often misunderstood by the other side just because we often miscontextualize the other. You know, as I've said many times on the show, we have, both of us, both Israelis and Palestinians, have a very bad habit of superimposing identities, ideologies, and motivations on the other that are actually very different from how the other experiences himself. And that leads us to not only counterproductive methods of struggle, uh, but also just misunderstanding what certain words, what certain slogans, what certain speeches mean, uh, because we're contextualizing them in our fantasy of who the antagonist is and what he wants, rather than in the reality of how he experiences himself in his struggle. Trust me, I understand that this mental block is hard. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not, I'm not saying mental block to, to be insulting in any way. It's hard to view a group of people that have been portrayed as the enemy uh, you know, saying slogans that, you know, and misinterpreting their slogans or misinterpreting their intentions. Like, I get that 100%. You know, and, but I think personally, I think that this kind of thing, honestly, um, it really just involves understanding the context of what's being said where. Um, the, the challenge is shifting the context. Right, shifting the context. Um, I mean, we could get into that. We could get really into this, but I just don't think it's. I don't think it's very helpful for this conversation. But my my fantasy is that we would be able to come into Ramallah and actually help and actually like fight alongside the protesters. But I know, for example, how would that even be received in your mind? Like if we actually did that, if we not not so many of us. Let's say uh, twenty mitnachlim, twenty West Bank Jews, you know, from nearby Beit El, were to come into Ramallah and actually join these protests. How would that be perceived? Okay, I'll say this, that there were different, okay, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday have to be, Saturday and Sunday can be treated as one because they're very similar in what happened and how it was, and also the people who were there were kind of different. On Thursday, when it was really the poor camp kids, the refugee kids, 
who were really leading this protest and fighting against, physically fighting against the Palestinian Authority, I think they could have gone one of two ways. If, you know, a group of West Bank Jews showed up, one of two things would happen. Either A, they would be, they would be welcomed. They would say, welcome, cousin. Where have you been? And it could go that way. Or the other way could be that they say, shouldn't you be with them, the Palestinian security forces? Because a lot of Palestinians, I would, this is something that's very, uh, I would say majority of Palestinians believe, maybe an overwhelming majority, that the Palestinian security forces are basically an extension of the Israeli state and the Israeli army. Mm-hmm. Meaning it's like, just like a Palestinian unit of the Israeli army. Right. Um, so, I mean, they, so you might get one or two. Now, on Saturday and Sunday, that would have been very different just because, I mean, considering the propaganda that the PA and Fatah specifically was putting out, if Jews showed up on Saturday or Sunday, it would have been, you know, Abbas would have been on TV smiling from ear to ear. I told you, it's a conspiracy. It's Hamas and Dahlan and Jews. They're trying to get rid of me. Right. I'm so necessary that they have to collude against me. I, I, can un, I can see that. I can easily see a bus playing that card. And that would resonate with a lot of Palestinians. It really would. Mm-hmm. So any such move at this point in the relationship dynamics would be counterproductive? Yeah, it needs, the, the relationships need to be normalized. Well, that's, oh, that's a bad word to use. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> any in, interactions, relationships, these need to exist before it could just show up. Um, and this could be something that's down in the down low. It can be done, right. you know, on the back end of things. It doesn't have to be in front of cameras or whatever else. Or like, you know, sometimes you see Israel saying, oh, look, Israelis are talking to Saudis on Twitter. Like, no, it, doesn't, it shouldn't be like that. It actually needs to be like person to person. Um, you know, so, I mean, we have to figure out a way to create the spaces that those relationships can exist, but be productive, not just be kumbaya right you know making jews feel better about the situation this is what we call in arabic tatabiya which is normalization which mm-hmm. is why i was laughing earlier it's a sure. bad verb to use but if those relationships need to exist before that solidarity can exist right um right. and i think that i mean i think you'll agree with this the, the biggest obstacle is that is that so right now at least is that jews aren't there yet i mean they right. just they they're not there yet Right. Yeah. I mean, we think we both wish that they will be, but they're not there yet today. Where I think Palestinians are, I mean, and again, I think we agree on this, Palestinian political discourse is far more advanced, yeah. um, far more diverse. Political knowledge, political awareness, political philosophy is far better articulated on this side than on your side, unfortunately. Sure. Um, especially, left, especially leftist streams or streams of solidarity that are not based on ethnic or national lines. I'll say that. Meaning, right, for the average person who's not a Jew or Palestinian, the Palestinian story is being received a lot better. Right. All right, so where do you see this going? Like, where do you expect this to end up? Could this lead to elections? Could this lead to Abbas stepping down and, uh, I don't know, putting his son in charge? Where is this going? I mean, I heard a philosophy today. Um, So if you listen to the show, he's going to know that I stole it from him. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what a lot of the leftists are saying. They think that Abbas is trying to skirt elections. Um, he's trying to skirt elections and he's going to even get large scale, not, let's say more, basically everybody's supporting it except for Hamas by basically shaking up the security forces because the security forces have been so tied 
to one specific stream of Fatah. And there's been a lot of internal beefs and conflicts about this, not only within Fatah, but within the PLO. Um, I, I maybe have to remind your listeners that the PLO is not just Fatah. Fatah is a ruling party of it. But again, there are multiple streams of Fatah, and there are dozens of parties that are in uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. So what I think is likely to happen is that there's going to be a reshuffling of, let's say, ministries, of security forces. There's going to be a decentralization of um, some posts within that, I think, to placate all these different actors within the PLO as a way to skirting elections, because I think Abbas probably figures that he can get enough support and placate enough um, of the other parties and of the other streams of Fatah by doing this. And then it's just Hamas who's screaming for elections and who cares? They're over in Gaza. So big deal, whatever. Which of course is funny because, you know, if you look at polls, Hamas now, just like in 2006, actually has more popular support in the West Bank than Gaza. But. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think that's what, I think Abbas is trying to create a big enough block without Hamas. I mean, you can kind of look at it, not very different than what has happened in the Israeli elections, uh, creating a hodgepodge, a hodgepodge of weirdness at the end of the day, I think, and I think you and I both agree at this point, that this coalition is in Israel is really run by Lapid. Right. And I think that maybe Abbas kind of looks at that and says, oh, if I can figure out some way to do that, mm-hmm. but not have to rotate in any way um, and avoid elections, okay, sure. You know, we'll retire some security force generals, you know, we'll diversify the political background of, you know, like representation politics. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can manage to do that. I, so this is a very big belief uh, on the street about what is going on. I, I think it's very interesting. I think it's very, when I first heard it, I kind of laughed. But the more I think about it, I'm like, well, it's actually, and I'm also, I'm going, I'm going a little bit deeper with it. I think that's really, I think it's really intuitive. I mean, I think that's really, uh, I think that's really smart analysis. And I think that would really help Abbas um, remain in power and maintain the facade, especially to the West, mm-hmm. uh, because that's where his biggest critiques are coming from. Right. Um, again, superficially, I believe, about the lack of transparency and the lack of democracy that's going on here. I mean, again, 15 years, 15 years. Do you think that these protests might have the potential to help kill and bury the two state paradigm? I mean, the people who go to these protests are against the two states in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, in, in general, the people who support two states tend to be Fatah, um, tend to be on the Palestinian Authority payroll. And I don't say that like derogatorily, that last part. Like, you know, there are teachers who are paid by Fatah and the Palestinian Authority to, to teach English. Mm-hmm. Like, so they support two states because, you know, their boss supports two states. So, I mean, at this point, you know, an overwhelming majority of Palestinians are against the two state solution. And so the people who go to these kind of protests don't even, it's not even a question to them. If you ask them, what's an obstacle for the two-state solution? And they would, they would laugh. They would say us, because we're against it. Just like most Palestinians are against it. And so really like Fatah, in addition to all the other stuff we mentioned, also has that baggage of pushing two states. So, I mean, there's no, like, there's no question within the protest movements. Anybody who's politically active, not in Fatah, uh, is against two states. Um, in the West Bank. It's, it's a given at this point. Right. It's very rare. They might say two states to, when the Westerners come by for a tour, but they don't, it's just like they don't want to be labeled a, an extremist or a radical. So they just say, oh yeah, you know, if two states are possible, okay, but I don't think it's possible. 
what that means is they support one state and they don't want to hurt your feelings. Right, right. <laughs> that's, what that, that's what that means. So all people who come here, fair warning, <laughs> when a Palestinian says that, they, they support one state. They just, don't want to, they just don't want you to lambast them and tell your friends back home how they're an obstacle to peace. Right. This is all very fascinating, and I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing this with us because it's so important uh, for people on the Israeli side and listeners abroad to have more of an inside perspective. I mean, you're, you're not exactly a Palestinian, but you're living on the ground in Ramallah, and I think, uh, you know, and I think it's valuable for people to, to know what's going on on the ground from somebody who actually has an awareness and understanding for Palestinian society and Palestinian politics. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm considering the, what feels like a blackout on media coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to be honest, this is incredibly frustrating, not just for me. I mean, this is something that there's a big debate going on among, uh, among participants in the protests about whether they should stop even bothering um, sharing this information with Western audiences because, you know, they're sharing all this information. They're sharing all these videos and all these testimonies and everything else. And what we get is a parody argument. Oh, we get a, we get a tagline. Protesters and security forces clash in Ramallah over the death of, an, of a dissident. Like, that's what, you, that's, what, that's what, you know, that's, the, that's the, the trophy that they get to show for, you know, getting beat up, beaten up in the streets and documenting it nonetheless. Um, and, sharing that in, and sharing that information with, you know, uh, international media. So there's a big debate right now about, you know, and, the, and the, most people support at this point to stop sharing with, uh, with, with non-Palestinians. And to only share it internally, to only do Arabic, not even bother anymore. And to be perfectly honest, I, I, I'm tending to lean on that side at this point. Why? And I think because nobody, nobody cares, nobody's doing anything about it, and they all then manipulate it to some other purpose. Well, let me ask you something. Let me ask you, is there a concern that this would be flipped as like a pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian talking point? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, it's already happening. Mm-hmm. It's already happening. I mean, something that's happening, like um, uh, there's a tweet that APAC said, you know, they tagged, I think it was Rashida Tlaib. And they said, oh, Rashida Tlaib, what's going on with your friends in the Palestinian Authority that you want to keep funding? You know, look at these kids that are getting beaten up in Ramallah. And it's like, Oh my God, like how can you take Palestinians being beaten up and sexually assaulted in Ramallah and then use it to perpetuate a right-wing talking point in the United States against a Palestinian legislator? Like this is happening. I mean, you can see this with other media outlets as well. This is incredibly frustrating um, to Palestinians. And this is incredibly frustrating to me. Like once you give that information and once you give that content, those videos and those testimonies, you can't control how it gets framed. And I think a lot of Palestinians are just like, you know what? No reporting is better than bad reporting. So like for many people, they just just think like, why bother? I mean, at the end of the day too, I think that something that this is very hard for Westerners and I think Americans especially to understand, they believe their identity is conceptualized around this idea of, let's say like, I don't want to get too political here, like standard liberalism, meaning that morality at the end of the day wins. And I think that people will say, say, they do say to Palestinians, and I know that I've heard this a million times, well, just keep sharing, eventually truth wins out and eventually truth will save you. It's like, is that, how can you tell somebody who just got clubbed in the face to keep putting themselves at risk? There are people who are being arrested in the night and being beaten up 
and having you know, their computers confiscated, their cell phones destroyed outside of the protests, just for having been there and having been seen there, they're being targeted. And you tell these people to keep doing it because you know, God willing one day truth will prevail. Like this is ridiculous to tell somebody who's suffering that and who's being a victim of it. Like how many people need to die? Right. Tell me one, five, 10, 20, then did they get justice? Like to tell Palestinians that of all people, you know, I, you know, I was have to deviate from the narrative here, but like, you know, 74 years of oppression, like from a Palestinian perspective, no justice. They're in a worse situation now than they were 30 years ago. I mean, they have in their perspective, two occupations going on and you're telling them, well, just keep holding on and keep sharing. Eventually us white people will save you. Like, no, no. And Palestinians are not falling for this trick anymore. And to be honest, I don't blame them because all that's happening is they're getting repressed worse and worse and worse. So like, yeah, I mean, I, again, this is why I'm leaning towards it. It's just because like bad reporting is bad reporting. It's not better than nothing. It's not. Okay. So I guess we're going to see in the coming days where this goes. And yep. on the Israeli side, we see almost nothing uh, about this. This is not... This is not dominating the news. This is not even close to dominating the news cycle. It's it's making an appearance. Yeah, it's, I've reached out to a few Israeli journalists, and uh, you know, one one shared a video, but really minimal context. At least it got viewed. And again, like I struggle with this. Mm-hmm. You know, I I really debated for a day. Like, should I even share this with this journalist? Like, you know, I can't control how he's gonna how he's going to how he's going to portray it. Mm-hmm. And I think that Palestinians are really, they're getting fed up with this. They're really fed up with this. So I hope we can do some good here. I hope so. I think, unfortunately, it's going to get swept under the rug. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Are you taking risks by coming on the show and sharing this? Sure. Possibly. It's definitely within the realm of possibilities, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't give you a, a probability, but it's definitely within the realm of possibilities for sure. I, I don't know what percentage. Meaning right now you, you are doing exactly what Mahmoud Abbas is trying to stop from taking place. Sharing information on what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And, do and you, the thing is too, there's no oversight here. Like, you know, I'm responsible to them. Like in the sense of I'm under their authority. So. Right. And do you feel that being a foreigner, not being a Palestinian gives you a little bit more ability to speak freely? Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, in many ways, most foreigners here feel invincible, which for the most part, I mean, is true uh, until it's not. And right. when, it, when is that until it's not? I don't want to find out. Like, right. I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the, the example. Right. <laughs> I really, I have no interest in this. I, do, I have no interest in being a martyr. None. All right. Well, Brian Williams, thank you so much for coming on the show. We, we know you're taking somewhat of a risk, so it's much appreciated. Thank you. All right, get them safe. Yeah, will do. This is Yuda Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. You can check out the show notes for this episode by going to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 56. 